movie night extravaganza. Um, one of our first bonus episodes, I guess. Um, I was gonna do one last week with uh with Jason Miles, but it turned into like a regular episode. So I think this is our first bonus episode. Um, so Catherine Lou's a film professor, uh, an author wrote this great book, Virtue Hoarders, um, Case Against the Professional Managerial Class, which is where I kind of wanted to start this conversation. Um, you know, just a, a working definition, I guess, of the PMC, because it's something that right now, I think, especially on, you know, left Twitter, uh, is, is pretty controversial. You know, there's a lot of Marxists, I think, who want uh, class analysis not to be, you know, new class analysis. They want it just to be like the Marxist, you know, the Marxian class analysis. And they feel like maybe the term class takes that away from them. So I wanted a, um, I guess I wanted a working definition for this conversation and uh, why you feel that this is a, an important, uh, an important defining, which which I do too, but you know, a, an important definition to have right now. Um, so I really follow John and Barbara Ehrenreich's definition of the PMC, the professional managerial class, but I maybe expand upon it a little bit. And I want to emphasize C. Wright Mill's contribution to this in his book, White Collar. Um, the professional managerial class has always existed as a kind of intermediary um, class who are of literate clerk-like people who maybe in feudalism were the clergy. And um, under Chinese feudalism, they were scholar bureaucrats, right? And so they mediate the power of the, um, under feudalism, the sort of divine monarch. And for me, under capitalism, they mediate the power of the capitalist um, and the working class. So it's an intermediate class. The Marxists, I think Barbara Ehrenreich is a Marxist. So I think the revival of this term has actually gotten people to talk about class more, which I think is really important. But the important thing about um, the evolution of the PMC, I would say is related to the complexity of capitalist modes of production, like um, with Taylorism and with the drive for efficiency to drive and extract as much labor power from the worker as possible and to produce and have him or her be reproduced as a consumer, um, you needed this intermediate class to be strengthened so that it could manage workers and also justify the um, power of the elites and the poverty of the working class. So in terms of capitalism's complexification, um, this class really arises in, in, in importance initially as a progressive class, I think within the United States, doctors, lawyers, um, and these were small town um, doctors and lawyers, not necessarily located in the big cities who were outraged by the depredations of capitalism in the late 19th century, early 20th century. I'm really talking about the United States now. So I moved from like a global vision of like the economic order to the United States. And um, partially because I think the US is really a pioneer in creating this class. It's a credentialed elite. College education has means more than ever um, with regard to um, economic outcomes and one's class standing in society. And the importance of the college education really has only accelerated in the 20th century and created this really um, the, this expansion of the class. I think the the numbers are something like you know professionals maybe numbered like three percent at the in 1900 and now within the Bureau of Labor Statistics they number about they take up about 25 percent of the population which is still a minority but um you know they're all people who went to college and I think the and who who do jobs that demand a college degree and who demand uh, and that demand um, a kind of um, extra training the other thing I think about this class is that it doesn't work with its body. So when um, we transitioned to Zoom, this class was able to, like me, able to work on the computer. Like some people. Yeah, and, and, and me, like the same thing. I, I don't think necessarily I'm like a fully, like Ben kind of called it like an aspiring PMC, I guess. I like, you know, I mean, I, I have a college degree, like I'm doing something that requires me to be in front of a computer. I'm not necessarily, I mean, I'm still in a position where like, it's precarious enough that if something like, I don't know, like a very small thing could send me right back to doing restaurant work again. So yeah, yeah. 
And I yeah, think I mean, and I think when I was younger, I was in your position, but then I got the PhD and got the like further on credential. But the thing about this now we could say is that we've overproduced members of this class in the United States and we've saddled them with unpayable amounts of debt. Yeah. And this, and the numbers of jobs that are actually good jobs in this class are not expanding. Um, and as in any class, all the benefits going to the top. And I think that one of the things that we've seen within the left is that young people like aspiring PMCs are the most vicious informer, uh, enforcers yeah. of PMC discipline. That because ladder. they want to fight their way up. They want to leave the working class behind. They want to enforce this code, this managerial, effectual code of behavior. And so that's the other thing that I think is important about this class is that it manages itself and other people. Yeah. And, and, and you're kind of, I mean, I don't know, under neoliberalism, I think it becomes extra, extra, um, I, like I, you, you see it more because all of a sudden management really is everything, right? Like data analysis, um, managing, you know, just managing everything like apps, like we have you know, on our phone, like our social lives are managed by apps. Like, so mm -hmm. every single, it really touches on every single um, possible part of uh, it, everything can be managed now, really like, you know, yeah. so we're kind of in a state of constant management. And in the profession that I'm in as a professor, if you want to be an administrator, if you want to manage stuff, you double your salary. If you if you want to like apply for grants, you know, kiss ass to rich people um, and manage personnel, if you're willing to do that job, you're able to just you know expand your salary. I'm not saying they're not like good people who are doing this job, but I'm just saying like it's another track now. It's a managerial a managerial track within every profession ha offers its rewards, and a lot of that has to do with your willingness to hire and fire, and your willingness to like talk to um, really really rich people. Yeah, and, and then I, I think that in, in now with social media, especially you know this desire to hire and fire is kind of worked into us. Like I think that's where kind of cancel culture plays into all oh, right of right because even if you can't literally fire someone you're aspiring to fire someone so like canceling is like saying you're fired it's got a lot of that donald trump energy yeah um so i wanted to switch to movies i guess um and and more of a global perspective because um we watched wrath of silence and we watched uh touch of sin and um so I wanted to play the trailer for Wrath of Silence first, I guess. I figured maybe that would be a good place to start. Um, Which is this extraordinary film that came out of China, made yeah, in 2017, right. released here in 2019. It's highly um, censored right now, right? And think about the fact that they were able to make this film. And censorship has gotten a lot worse over the last few years in China, right? Now that, I mean, kind of on the global stage. Um, well, number one, I mean, I think power is getting consolidated right now within the CCP. Uh, to agree, it really hasn't been since, I mean, since really Mao, right? Like it, um, the amount of power that she has been able to like consolidate into a, um, a um, Yeah, she, she is very, very interested in, in the consolidation of power, but you could also say this, like, I'm going to spin this in a more positive CCP way. It's like, mm -hmm. she is very interested in culture. All right. So, <laughs> okay. let's, so let's just look at, let's just watch this and see.
我信佛，吃素。羊也吃素。So one thing I really liked about this movie is how innovative they kind of had to be in a way that I don't think that in like American filmmaking necessarily would be able to happen. Like I, I can't, I can't see an action movie that a director right now would handicap themselves to the point of like having a. I mean, no pun intended by saying handicap, but to have a, a protagonist who literally doesn't speak for the entire movie.、Um, the father is mute. Yeah, we should. It's like a revenge film. Well, the other film we watched was Taken, and it's about a father revenge film, but the father doesn't speak.、He's、yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I just feel like I can't see like an American director necessarily. Like we're very, we're very verbose. I think in the way that you know we write scripts, like Hollywood is like you know like like. Even watching Taken, like it has to explain in fifty different ways. Like I used to be in the CIA, and here's why it's right for me to go after all these Eastern European,、uh, like Albanian people, and and this is this is like the, my history. Like in this movie, that this that doesn't happen because the protagonist literally doesn't speak. So it's very interesting. Like even even like the interrogation scenes, he has to hand a piece of paper or like he has to somehow signal it, and I found that very like incredibly innovative. So I was thinking about how he, the father, Zhang Baoming, is really a working class hero. But part of, and he's like an action hero because he, you know, he's able to like kill his way through、um, all the bodyguards that are guarding the really、um, corrupt crime boss who you see torturing someone by stuffing、um, lamb meat in their mouths. And the, from the beginning, this film is going to be about like、um, power and domination, like this kid. Who we see as a little shepherd with a lamb,、um, um, taking care of his lambs, he disappears, and it's this child's disappearance that is this crime that the father wants to solve. No one cares about this kid because he's the son of working class,、uh, working class family. But the father cares so much about this child and the loss of this child. And I mean, we'll do a little plot spoiling. The thing about it is kind of horror, thriller, action, and noir. Because there's no actual justice that happens at the end, and the father's like uniquely powerless. But I was thinking about how like this film, attack on local corruption, really elevates, like Dajanka's film、um, that we're going to talk about later, A Touch of Sin, the working class、um, righteousness of the protagonist, and that comes from years of. You know, I think like communist indoctrination. Maybe in the Cultural Revolution, there's like a glorious sort of、um, over-idealization of the working class hero. But I feel like today in American, the American film industry, everyone goes to film school. Everyone comes out of this PMC white-collar aspirational content-producing world. There's no one who's like organically connected to、um, the working class or place and the or place. Of like mining, which is northwestern China, Shanxi Province, which is actually where my、um, maternal, my my mother's family is from, and this area of China is both like really, really poor. It's developed a lot less quickly than the coasts, and because of mining, it was so easy for a couple of miner,、uh, uh, for people to just like privatize the mines、yeah. and、um, discard the miners. And so this film is about that process of privatization too. And one of the things that it does that you noted was that the、um, the investigators, right? They're not bad. They just they're kind of faceless, and and a bunch of them are wearing the CCP buttons. So it doesn't criticize them because it's this this working class father pitted against this local mob boss, basically, and you know, cap privatizer and、um, like. Who who seems to only eat lamb meat in the、um, hot、yeah. pot? And there's and, a lot of、um, there's a lot of lamb throughout this whole. There's movie, a lot、right? of、like、lamb. It's what Northwestern China is known for.、Yeah. But the whole thing about consumption and eating and the whole and the lamb carcasses is really powerful. And then what you have then is like the father, the the corrupt crime boss, and his PMC lawyer, who's like been executing all of his contracts and being paid off by the crime boss capitalist. And then the sort of government police come in at the end, and they do apprehend the bad guys. But the crime of the disappearance of the child is never solved. Yeah, I, and so、which、I is, think that which, has- which is a very it's very interesting because you obviously have these、um, these moments where you see the two children because there's a second child obviously that is kidnapped、uh, by 
Like, because boss, the crime yeah. boss who like um put the thumb screws on his lawyer. It's the lawyer's child who um is yeah. kidnapped. Um, and she is she lives in a really like beautiful apartment. Her dad is a lawyer. This little boy lives, you know, in one of these like converted cave homes from northwestern China. And the two of them in a kind of fantasy scene that you that was so extraordinary. Sort of look at you know are united in some way, and, yeah, it, and it, almost, it really has that beautiful thing where they're standing on the hill and it just rises up and you see the cityscape behind them. Right, um, you've seen this like really um, rural, well, you know, beautiful, but you know the um, yellow earth, um, high, um, lowest steps, and then the camera rises up when the two of them are walking, and you see like the city. Um, beyond yeah. them and this is an incredible scene and i think it also resonates with um one of the early first um, fifth generation films yellow earth which is also an incredibly beautiful film about this really really poor part of china during the 1930s when the communists were there on their retreat ready to um escaping the nationalists and the japanese trying to re ready themselves for fighting the japanese but one of the things that the communists um, had was a real cultural program. And in the Yellow Earth, which came out in 1987, the communist soldier is sent off to a village and he's asked to collect folklore and folk songs to bring back to um, the communist headquarters so they can like write propaganda film, propaganda songs to raise everyone's morale because it's incredibly difficult there. So this it's about a communist soldier who meets this very, very poor family. And it's also about two children. Um, uh, and a boy who's mute, and he's a shepherd. So I feel like there's all this intertextuality, there's an incredible richness, and it's not, the communist soldier is very upright, but he cannot rescue the children from their lives of poverty. And yeah. so the limitations on that is also like an incredible, sort of it adds this dimension to what people are, you know, how people are grappling with the massive, um, um, the incredible poverty of um, masses of people in China. So see, I think in both of these movies, um, kind of the the idea of like, uh, you know, the government's never, you know, evil, like, but it's ineffectual. Like, right. I mean, especially right. in uh, especially in Wrath of Silence, like, you know, they they are they're they're looking into these mines, and the guy is consolidating the mines through intimidation, like he, which is just the scene the where violence, just sheer violence. I yeah. agree. Yeah. But I mean, he does that one scene where he uh, shoves the guy says he's a Buddhist and he shoves the lamb meat into his mouth and is like making him like consume the lamb, like raw lamb meat. Yeah. And so he's, he's, like, he's an owner of a small mine, doesn't want to sell it to the big crime. Yeah. Guy. Right. And so he's so he's like consolidating his power through that. And, you know, the government's uh, investigating it, but it seems like they can't investigate it fast enough. And, you know, if nobody talks um, as much as they want to threaten them because of the violence, like if nobody says anything about it. Uh, they can't really do much. So it doesn't really come off as, you know, the CCP is, is you know, evil as much as uh, ineffectual and kind of just like, you know, like, because these are the power centers are, are not, you know, the government in this case, the power centers are the privatized uh, crime, well, in this case, a crime boss, but just the privatized system. It, it's, it's gangster capitalism. You know, yeah. it's, it's gangster capitalism, it's extractivism, it's extraction capitalism. And um, what, you know, in Jadranka's film, A Touch of Sin, which we'll talk about later, there's this idea that it's that the outrage of the minor has to do with the fact that this collectivization didn't benefit everyone. Like it just became privatization. Mm -hmm. Whoever was the biggest bully was able to like sell the mine to private interests. And all the other miners are working in this very, um, um, you know, um, deprived atmosphere deprived environment and so i was just i was also thinking about like the heroism of these figures and their helplessness at the same time because it's like this this transition to capitalism is fraught with this kind of like violence thuggery the people who rise to the top are um are completely corrupt xi jinping himself his biggest um one of his biggest things that came that allowed him to consolidate power was his anti-corruption campaign. So there's yeah. a way in which both films fit into that narrative. But I feel like there's such important explorations of class and the class struggle during this transition 
from um, socialism to capitalism that took place in the hinterlands. I don't feel like there's any kind of um, real exploration of class in American cinema today. It is so censored. So we have the censorship of the market and the censorship of the party. And in yeah. the censorship of the party, we still see such an incredible struggle for justice, incredible struggle for um, dignity on the part of a working class father and a working class minor in the case of A Touch of Sin, um, which are, this is, is based the, uh, on this story. Yeah, so executed in Northern Province, um, executed 14 people, I guess, with a with an ax and a hunting rifle, which it seems like the sensationalism of the story, obviously, is the murders. There isn't really uh, any information right. in this specific one about- um, What about, happened? Yeah, or like, you know, the privatization or anything like that. But I guess this, this is the broad strokes of it. I couldn't really find another English language one that really covered this. Um, so I, I looked around to, so um, in A Touch of Sin, which is the other film that we decided to talk about, which is also, you know, which is focused also on Northwestern China, which is an incredible, like, um, fertile land for um, Chinese film history. Um, one of the first um, episodes is like a four, it's an omnibus film made by one director, but there are four stories in it loosely connected. It, the first story is based on this, like, murder, this killing rampage that happens in Northwestern China when this group of miners, three of them, I think, decide to kill the, the corrupt people in the um, area who've been ripping them off and ripped off like a whole village. Um, and it's claimed to like the minerals underneath that village. But um, the incredible thing about um, um, Dahai in um, A Touch of Sin is that he is such a sympathetic character. Like the yeah. filmmaker is just so sympathetic with him. And he- Especially watching it as- especially watching it as a leftist uh like i mean i guess social like democratic socialist is how i classify myself but like as somebody who really notices privatization taking place in all these areas not necessarily the the collectively owned here in the u.s like collectively owned uh centers but like you watch the social institutions kind of erode away you watch every like literally everything get corporatized privatized um and so like having like watching a character running around literally yelling like there is no justice there is no justice uh as he runs uh trying to convince people that you know that the mind being privatized is going to like fuck them all over pretty much and you know and, and the fact that the the answer to it is oh you're just jealous that like you're not the one in charge and like that's such a like that resonates with me so much like I've been so many, I mean, like at least just like like Facebook arguments even like with friends where they're like oh you just hate Elon Musk uh because, <laughs> because he's because you're jealous like you wish you had that like you know mm -hmm. that talent and power and all that stuff and it's like no like this is going to fuck us over like we're being left behind literally the entire planet is being left behind by these billionaires right now as they privatize everything literally like elon musk is buying up towns bill gates is the largest landowner right now in the united states like that doesn't terrify you and the answer yeah. from a lot of people is like oh well you're just jealous like they i know have i can't believe they say that i can't believe yeah. <laughs> but so the guy who brought the so da had the um the protagonist comes up in the world in the mind and has a um you know a, a co-worker who privatizes the mines and he's flying around in a private jet and when he comes back to this village everyone's kissing his ass because they want a piece of his money but Dahai is just very very like angry about all of this stuff and um he has diabetes and he's um ailing but he's this totally heroic figure the actor just is you know really embodies this like working class sensibility he's got this big coat he wears it all the time there's no heat in indoors anyone who's like knows china knows like he's just he lives in that he's like inhabiting that world so um with such authenticity and 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 i feel like there's this moment that's really surreal at the beginning of the film that i really love where he um he's been trying to get people to organize to um, question or to sue the um, owner of the mine. Now that he's like, we own this mine. Like, why is this happening? And it's not really working, right? Everyone's like hoping just for a piece of the pie, but he walks into this restaurant and there are three women who see him and they say, die and they greet him. And then they start singing and they start singing this folk song and it's and the camera pans towards them and it's like there's a horizontal pan 
And it's like you go, we, we go into another genre. It's, um, you know, so far it's been noir, you know, um, social problem film. But suddenly we're in this like um, folklore musical genre. And and they, as they sing this folk song, one of them comes up and it's like almost the only moment of tenderness in this film. She touches his cheek. So they're like the chorus, like they are the people in sort of the cultural revolutionary mode. They, they sing that, they sing the songs that in the yellow earth, the communist soldier was meant to gather. And um, they show him like so much humanity and tenderness, just as these kinds of witnesses, like, oh, you're here, we're you're familiar with you. Um, you're our, you know, you're our comrade. And in every other scene that dies in, he is, um, he's being persecuted. So it's almost surreal. And you have this moment where the director, Jaranka, has sort of pushed against the limits of the genre again. And then there's another moment in the film when you have a completely surreal, like non, it's actual non-diegetic sound. And it's um, when he decides that no one's going to, um, help him. The government is not going to, um, he wants to petition the White House, the equivalent of the White House, Hai, to tell them about this corruption, this local corruption. Um, the woman at the post office says, you can't just write a letter to Zhongnanghai. Yeah. And then um, the, he realizes that the mayor of the town is in on it. Um, the thugs around his friend, who's now like jetting around private jet, have beaten him up with the golf club. And he's like, permanently disfigured he spends like half his episode with this bandage around his head and he he takes out his hunting rifle he unwraps his hunting rifle like you know they live in sort of remote china where you can still hunt which is unbelievable like when you think about how remote that is because china is so densely populated and developed now yeah. so he got he gets his um he's in his room he unwraps his um rifle and the camera pans once again to this like tiger blanket that he has on a chair. And at that moment, you hear the roar of a tiger. And it's almost the only non-diegetic sound. And that tiger, um, and the tiger roars, like this tiger on his blanket, like actually, you know, goes wow. <sighs> It's jarring almost because it's so the, jarring. Yeah, because there, are, there isn't really any other non-diegetic sound throughout this. I don't think so. But you were talking about like the use of animals in this film, and we'll talk about like children afterwards. But the the one of the things that the film shows is that when Daha is walking around in the town, like trying to get people to, you know, trying to organize people, and he's still trying to find the legal means of redress. That he sees a farmer in the distance just whipping this horse, whipping this horse like almost to death. And the horse is staggering and the farmer's like yelling at him and it's just brutal. And then when Dahai gets his, starts a shooting spree and starts to like kill everyone who's been, um, you know, raping and pillaging the land and the people, he goes and he kills the um, farmer because he walks by him and he, the guy's like whipping his horse again. And there's this moment when the horse is really, when the farmer dies and the horse trots off and it's like freedom. And so even though you know that he's going to be caught and he's actually in the, in the, um, you know, news story, he's condemned to death and he's killed, you know, because China is very, you know, very willing to do capital punishment you have you you have this feeling like he's liberated somehow he's like the horse like he's the horse is the worker and the farmer is the capitalist and he's killed it he's killed the farmer and he's at least freed this animal at least this animal know like one moment of joy and um in the real life description of his moment of execution the character that this um um, characters, the figure that this character is based on, they said that he comported himself with enormous dignity at the end and shook the hands of everyone who's going to shoot him. He's like, I accept this, I accept this, you know, sentence and I've killed 14 people and I didn't know how else to provide justice and I want to tell all of you that you're honorable and you're doing your job. 
I mean, it was just, he's a folk hero. Like, that's why he's a folk hero. And he has that really, the, the actor in this has that really um, almost beautiful moment where he finally, I mean, it's horrifying, but it's also kind of transcendently beautiful when he finally shoots the uh, the, the mine owner that um, in, in the yeah, car. In his BMW, crazy. in his fancy BMW. Yeah. And he's covered in blood and he just has this smile on his face that's like, feels like he, he yeah. So it's like, it's an extremely class-based um uh segment and i mean the whole movie is obviously but i think that in particular is the most um uh on the nose one i think the other one the other parts of it are a little more uh like specific i i, I think but the, um, the the woman the bathhouse woman who kills all of the um kills her would-be rapist she was that was amazing too yeah like there's also transformation of genre because you know, these guys are trying to make her, you know, give them sexual favors and she just loses it and she uses this little fruit knife and kills them. But um, it suddenly becomes like a, um, a martial arts film. She kills them yeah. like a martial artist. So, well, it also that it brings to mind like Kill Bill. Like she's dressed like uh, Uma Thurman a little bit in Kill Bill. And like, I, I don't think necessarily it's like, you know, it's not like a heavy handed uh, reference to it, but like it kind of, it had the same kind of uh, aesthetic, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this sort of the killer woman, but I feel like there's so much more political content mm -hmm. in Dadunko's film. It's not just like um, psychological violence. Yeah. There's like all of this. There's psychological violence that she can't take anymore, but she's just tired of being, a, you know, serving these people and then being betrayed by her lover. And she's and she's just like pushed to the edge. Um, and, and she's trying to find some dignity too. So she too was based on a true story of a bathhouse worker who was supposed to be giving these local like um, like um, bureaucrats who act like fucking war, you know warlords um, a pedicure, and they ask for sexual favors, and she um, picks up a pedicure knife and sticks it into one of the um, guys next, kills him, and then wounds the other two people in the um, salon. And in that story, she also becomes a folk hero. She's arrested. She turns herself in. She calls the police. She calls her mom. And in real life, um, she's acquitted of the crime yeah, I have because, of popular, because of popular um, support for her cause. So you could see like in the 2000s, from 2000 to 2010, there was so much discussion of these stories on like Chinese social media that these figures became um, working class heroes. They really did. Like a lot, like millions of people were commenting on their cases and there actually was um, a, a, a transformative outcome for her because they said like she had mental health issues. Um, lawyers came from Beijing to came, to um, support her case, to plead her case, and the charges were dropped against her, which I thought was also really incredible. I mean, well, it's pretty I, insane that she has to be like it has to be said that she has mental health issues because, like, you know, I mean, someone's trying to rape her. Like, it's kind of understandable to turn around and, and stab that person. So it's interesting that that they had well, they said like she used excessive force because she pierced his, you know, aorta with her. Um, the pedicure knife, but I feel like the rage of just being of exploitation is also mm -hmm. something that Jaranka was really good at um, um, illustrating. And so maybe like, okay, so I want to just pull out here for a moment and just talk about like American foreign policy and American Chinese, China experts, like people in the 2000s and up until now are all like, Oh my God, there's so much unrest. People are so unhappy with the government. Oh my God, 4 million comments on this. This means that the government will fall. You know, like, oh my God, the, they have to censor that stuff because things are really going to go wrong for the Chinese government. Everything's like going wrong. And it's like, actually, the what it showed was like Chinese society was able to criticize certain things that were happening that they thought were wrong. There were folk heroes that emerged from social media, from these horrific cases of violence in the provinces. And like, there was some kind of political transformation these people were getting. And they were like, oh my God, the CCP is so scared of this. It's like, think about like all the propaganda that we're fed in the United States. Like it would be as if BLM last year when everyone was so outraged about George Floyd, the CCP would like, 
constantly say in all of their coverage, like the US government is about to fall. Look at all of these unhappy people. I'm an America watcher. I'm an America hand. And I'm going to tell you that there, you know, these the days of this government are numbered. And, and they, that's a lot of how kind of, China uh, watchers, China watchers, that's how they treat China right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh and, and I think that there's been um certain uh Chinese social media personalities that have like done that as trolling, like which is I always think is kind of funny. Like something will happen with Black Lives Matter and there'll be like a you know, they'll be trolling, they'll be like, Oh wow, like I guess like the US government is is really failing its citizens, which it is, but like, you know, like so it's like that um I don't know because because we we tend to do that here as in like a we have moral superiority in all things which we obviously don't but like you know because there's constant protests against our government both uh on a federal level on a local level on a state level and and horrifying like i mean not just the privatization and neoliberalism and and, and you know obsession with capital but like just on like a on an individual human rights level like you know what i mean like more like people in prisons here than anywhere in in, in right. the world like right. and and constant erosion of our rights in ways that like a lot of times don't even get talked about. So the fact that, you know, people are like, cause they're doing the same thing with Cuba right now. Like there's Cuba watchers. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. I was going to, I'm glad you did that. Yeah. There are protests in Cuba and we're like, Oh my God, it's over. And, and I also think that that is what paves the way for us foreign policy to intervene because they were going to help people who want freedom. And it's, you know, the OAS and the CIA has always helped people in Latin America um, to get their freedom from communism by promoting these murderous military juntas. So it's like every time America's concerned about the freedom of another country, fucking run for the woods, because that just means shit is coming down. And they're going to come and fuck you up. Now, this makes us go to transition to the um film that you suggested we watch and i'm really glad i, I made myself yeah, I, don't, it. I didn't want to watch it again <laughs> i did no, but it, it, it is about <laughs> the cia and its righteousness and this former cia agent um taken i did not realize it was a franchise for us how yeah. scary is that but it, <laughs> I, it made 253 million dollars i saw it came yeah. out in it's, like an, it's like an airline franchise like you know there's those certain franchises that are like I feel like they're just made so that people pay them on planes. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, I know. I know. It's not like a highbrow franchise, but <laughs> still, um, I feel like that the propagandization in that film is so much more horrifying than yeah. anything I've seen in a long time because it's like very post 9 11. The evil guys are like the French, the Albanian, and then this like weird Saudi Sheikh Arab guy. You don't know what country's <laughs> from, but he also he has that weird and, and kill all of them. The movie starts out with this weird paternalistic relationship he has with a Arab store clerk that they seem to like. Oh, the guy right. is like, I forgot. Yeah. So, and I think that it comes, this movie is made at a very strange time because. You know, 2008, the Iraq war is at its least popular level. People are kind of, I mean, Obama wrote in on the wave of being like, you know, like, let me be clear, we're going to uh, end uh, the war. So like, you know what I mean? So th this is something that's being debated. Exit strategies, um, and if you remember in 2008, were like the, the buzzword of every single debate. Everybody had to kind of provide some kind of exit strategy, at least in the Democratic debate. And um, so it kind of rides in on this when, you know, I don't think people are, are looking for like a, an Arab or Middle Eastern character to just uh, fuck up anymore. Because for a little while, I think from 2001 to 2006, you didn't really have to provide like a rationale for like beating up Middle Eastern people in movies, like culturally, like, like think about like 24 was on and like oh, all yeah. shows where it's just like, oh, they're, they're, they're Arab. So they must be jihadists. Like, okay, right. like now we're into the plot. So, oh, so we could we can call that high Islamophobia. Like yeah, and then is like a little more ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's like Russian. Bit. Well, I feel like Albanians are like the Russian Arabs, kind of. You know what I mean? Like it's enough, like both that they're like, well, Russia was scary back then, and Arabs are scary now. Like let's just figure out a way to like make them like like consolidate them into a yeah. And they're so scary, and like it's a country of three million people with like a GDP like half the size of California's or may or less even I was gonna look that up today but we I just put a lot of numbers you can we, we can do it afterwards in post-production. Yeah. I was like this really tiny impoverished country produces these vicious um gangsters that that um 
kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter so you can just completely fuck them up. And there's like all the moral panic things, white slave trade, heroin addiction, um, selling women. But the thing that I thought was really brilliant about your suggestion to watch it is that both um, Wrath of Silence and Taken open with shots of these children mm -hmm. who are going to be taken, you know, who are going to disappear. I mean, the the young, the daughter of Liam Neeson, he's watching her fifth birthday party and she's just like opening stuff up and she's like, you know, By the way, she does not like, girl. it's really funny that like, it's really funny kind of that her, like she's like going to France to like explore museums and like, it's not like she's, she's the farthest thing from like a, a working class character like her stepdad is super rich so um that's one of the reasons why Liam funny, funny uh funny thing about the stepdad that i wanted to bring up um last wednesday um uh jay andrew world who who does um who's like on the show with me and who's on gta um we watched uh we watched a movie for um the same actor xander berkeley that plays the stepdad was in mm -hmm. this uh 80s movie that we watched and then he had his friend uh, Gabriel on the stream, and it turns out he made a movie recently with Xander Berkeley, uh, is in his documentary. So we watched this documentary trailer. So we kept being like, "Oh, like Xander Berkeley, like I guess it was like a not like not like an inside festival, joke. A Xander Berkeley festival." Yeah. So yeah, so then seeing him in this um in this movie again because I completely forgot he was uh, the second I saw it, I was like Xander Berkeley. Cause I like, I, I tweeted something about it and he saw my tweet and like liked a bunch of my tweets and, <laughs> like, in a row. He liked my like Donald Rumsfeld cut that I did and that tweet. And I was like, I was like, Oh, like, cause he, it turns out, I guess he's a really nice guy, which I mean, he seems like, but the first time mm -hmm. I was really introduced to him as an actor, um, I mean, like I've seen him in things, but like, you know, not just a character actor was he was in walking dead and he was that really, he was just that really, really, um, he was the, the the president guy of Hilltop, the politician. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh yes! Oh my god! He was like a <laughs> total perv. That's right. He plays his really evil. That's he what just, I he's just scared and like cloying and like like instantly bent, like you know, because diplomacy has no place really in the apocalypse. And nope. he's like, oh, like I'll just give you half half our stuff. Like it's fine. Like so. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So he just seems he's so good at playing that character in that. But then it was nice to, to find out he's like a nice guy that. You know, <laughs> but yeah, he was corrupt and cowardly in uh, the way mm -hmm. he did. That's right. So, but what I was going to say about the the first shot in Wrath of Silence of the little boy, you know, um, in the field with his flock of sheep was that he's like working, you know, he's he's like nine and yeah. he's working, and the shot and taken is of this like little suburban rich white girl opening presents. So <laughs> it's all about children as consumers. And the guy's um, horse, her stepdad gives her like a horse or something, doesn't he? Yeah, her yeah, Xander Brickley gives her a horse. And, um, you know, Liam Neeson gives her a karaoke machine and feels really humiliated. Like that's the class analysis there yeah. in that film, right? It's all like, middle class versus 1% and the and the economy is about to crash i think this film was made before it was released in france in january of 2008 so like the the economy had not crashed yet but you know we were on the precipice of that and that was like you know he's like ex soldier ex gia struggling guy who can only afford to give his daughter a karaoke machine and his daughter's going to go and then turn around and get a horse from her rich stepdad. Yeah. But I was talking, but I was wanted to talk about this kid in um, Wrath of Silence and this little shepherd boy. You know, for me, he really, like the social problem in this film, and I want to recommend everyone read Robert Warshaw, my favorite leftist film critic from the 1930s and 40s, who's completely forgotten today, is it, you know, he talks about how noir is about social problems. Um, dealing with social problems in gangster films, sorry, not noir, gangster films in the 40s are dealing with social problems in a very like um, censored world. And this is what Wrath of Silence is for me too, but um, the social problem that um, China- We forget how much censorship there was of- Well, um, there was the so Hayes Code. Like, like yeah, we, there was the Hayes Code. Yeah, no, but like we go after um, like all these other countries that were like, oh, there's so much media censorship. And then yeah, we literally had a code, crazy. not not just not just a production code that said you can't do these things. Like reading into the Hayes Code, it literally like told you how to structure the stories. Like 
you couldn't have the villain survive in the end. Like you couldn't have an anti-hero. You couldn't have, uh, if someone committed crimes, they had to either go to jail or like, yeah. Like I remember, uh, reading that in a, I, I took a noir class and, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and like, I remember reading that and being like, holy shit, like this is not just censorship on like, a this is ideological censorship. Like it's not just censorship mm -hmm. on the level of like, Oh, well, we don't want you to do these things in a movie. Like this is censorship to the point of like, we only want movies with this specific plot. And, and if you think about like the really popular films, like Marvel, they still follow that line. The, the scandal of Joker was that it didn't. Yeah. You know, cause like the bad guy kind of wins your sympathy, but like we're still in the Hayes code in so many different ways at this level of mass marketing. But okay. So what I was going to tell what I was going to say about the, um, the, um, um, the kid is that there are six, uh, we're going to show the links too, but there are probably like, 69 million migrant children were abandoned by their parents for 10 months of the year so that their parents can go and work in these factories in um on the coasts and this and 60 this says 60 million there are also 69 these children are totally worthless in china like if one of them dies what, what i mean is like their parents feel like they're burdens they want to um um feed them and raise them, but they can't um, take care of them to their, to the police, to the society, to the government, to the um, surrounding poverty in their villages. They are only worth as much as they can produce as workers. Like this is the Marxist 19th century nightmare of child labor or yeah. abandoned children. And it's here, it's contemporary. It's now. And um, this is a social problem, the devaluation of the migrant worker, of the working class child. And Wrath of Silence puts that right up there. Like basically, can I do some plot spoiling then? The gangster yeah. mob guy uses this kid as um, target practice and kills him like he's an animal. That's the implication. And he's prosecuted for you know um, corruption, but not for murder. And I think that's really important too. Like there is no justice for this father. There's actually no justice for this kid. And um, and I feel like this the filmmaker, you know, um, Xu Yun Kong, he has such an incredible sense of what the social problem is. Like a lot of the noir filmmakers and the gangster filmmakers that Robert Warshaw talks about. And who do we have today who is making films in Hollywood. I would say Steven Soderbergh is our closest um, sort of person who can, who has that sense of um, outrage about capitalism. But this recent, you know, cycle in the Oscars really elevates Nomadland to, you know, this, this level of like prestige film, but also social problem film, problem, you know, film that explores, you know, inequality and all this other stuff. And what it really basically shows us is like, oh, living in a van is a choice. And, yeah. uh, Burn just chooses and we did like an oscar stream with uh this is revolution um jason miles where we kind of went into that pretty deeply um the the fact that it's kind of it, it becomes like a hashtag van life aesthetic rather mm -hmm. than being like a, a problem and the other thing is i think that really um makes it uh especially kind of heinous but also interesting is that her uh like her her ability to like travel like the like the, her or her desire to travel i guess francis mcdormand yeah, yeah. Her, her desire to travel is like endemic to her personality. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just that like, oh, like she's like, cause deindustrialization is, is shown like her town shuts down pretty much, but like her, her wanderlust, I guess, is, is shown as like being endemic to her personality. Like she has options and she decides not to take those options because she's restless to the point where um she like, she's restless to the point where, where like she can't settle down in a place. So it's almost like, well, you know, the people that are living this way, at least some of them are are choosing to live this way because they want to. And it's just, you know, it's just that van life is van life. And it's like, mm -hmm. it, it kind of indoctrinates your mind into being like, well, maybe like you feel sorry for a lot of the uh, things that have gone wrong in people's lives. And like the people that are in that movie are like real homeless or, you know, nomadic mm -hmm. people, like a lot of them, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. like, also uh like at least you know the hero version of it is is somebody who it's endemic to their personality to the point where like th they couldn't live any other way 
Yeah, they're migrant workers, senior citizens who are living on Social Security, not able to live on, and they choose to be nomads and live in their vans. And um, it, it's a really aestheticized choice, too. And the beauty of the West kind of redeems, like, the suffering or the the shots of her at the beat um, harvest, which I, I read the book about, which sounds absolutely horrific, the beet harvest in North Dakota in October and, and Amazon, the Amazon warehouse, which we know is horrific working conditions, but it's all like aestheticized and the, and it's treated and work is treated as this like beautiful landscape. And I think that, you know, the Northwest of China in Jajanka's film and in Wrath of Silence is really beautiful. And both filmmakers, you know, really pay tribute to that. But like in the shot that you showed of the little kids against that industrial background, he never lets us forget about the infrastructural like devastation and the human scale of that devastation. And he Ironic, never, he never romanticizes yeah. that beautiful landscape. The only time that I think, uh, not, not to interrupt you, sorry, but the only time mm -hmm. I think really American filmmakers have really um, gone into the de deindustrialization as much as something like that, where it's like horrifying and and abandoned and like like really like left behind is the perfect <laughs> term for it. Is in the eighties I've noticed a lot of uh, science fiction dystopic stuff, like um like when you like RoboCop is a perfect example of it, or uh, we're watching yeah. for tonight's episode um Repo Man, like. You know, in the whole movie, he's he's running past like these abandoned buildings, and you know, it's like, well, if we keep deindustrializing, de like our massive cities are going to just become these like sprawling, empty wastelands. Yeah, mm -hmm. and but like, but now that 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 actually has come to pass, like big stretches of the, the of the country, like entire states, like West Virginia and stuff, are like you know, like are are literally like ex company towns. Like that's kind of where it started from. Like these mining companies decided to just abandon towns, like because the town was centered around the mine, like that's not covered at all because we okay. consider those people uh, like almost undesirable. Uh, like, like you never, you don't, it's not very often. And Steven Soderbergh did that movie, Logan Lucky, I guess. Right. That, that was his, uh, yeah. that's the only time I can think of like a West Virginia um, people struggling in West Virginia, even being considered like, um, like, well, like, no, the, there's the right wing version of this JD Vance's hillbilly LG. Yeah. Which I haven't seen. I uh, watched oh. 35 minutes of oh, it because it was up for an Oscar and I was trying to, I was doing this thing with my friend uh, Karthik where we were trying to go over as many Oscar movies as we can, where we could, um, and then we were going to either film something or write something. It ended up becoming the This Is Revolution stream that I referenced, but um, it, it, like, it was not, like, I watched 35 minutes of it for that and I was like, I really, like, I can't, I can't. I didn't even know who J.D. Vance was. I mean, I knew that he was the hillbilly LG guy, but I didn't know he was, like, an aspiring politician until recently like until i watched that really like i don't know not good not a not a good not a good movie whatsoever. i tried to read the book too i read about half the book i read nomadland the book too not a good book either it turns out that jessica bruder who wrote the nation wrote nomadland is like this trust fund kid who lives in brooklyn <laughs> well so, the, the nomadland so, book is a lot more critical of amazon right like that's the not really. I mean, that's what everyone says. Like, that's why I read it. It was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be... It is critical. It is crit more than the film. Yeah. But very much like um, slumming it, you know. Well, she, works, okay, she works at Amazon and she quits in the middle of her job. She works in the beet um, harvest and she quits. It's like she tries to be... Um, you know, Barbara Enrich did Nickled and Dimed where she went in and worked as a, clean, a hotel cleaner and she said, I can't use any of my... Um, white collar world upper middle class resources like I have to live this way for six months and she like you know damaged her body yeah, she I read like, that I read that in like seventh grade I think oh, um, that's great I can't I believe you like PMC private school that really like embodied like the the red diaper baby style like PMC culture but it was like did you go to the little red schoolhouse no it, it was it was in upstate New York it was a okay. uh, high meadow it was like it was it was an offshoot of uh, of Waldorf schools, um, okay. but they decided that the Waldorf schools were too strict for them. So it's almost it's very Protestant in that way. Like you know, like one one sect of uh like like Montessori school type of things like uh, leaves another sect, and then that sect decides, well, we want to start our own school where the rules are just a little bit different. Like, but we still believe in the same uh, immersive style of learning that you know. But um. Yeah, but but I just wanted to contrast Jessica Bruder with Aaron Reich. Like Bruder lasts a week 
in Amazon. She lasts like a week at the beet. I think she lasts like three days at the beet harvest, actually. Like she's like, I gotta go back to Brooklyn. No, I'm sorry. I don't want to trash her too much, but I, I, it was also very boring. Um, she yeah. made she. It was not a good. Something about it was just very deadening. So, um, so yeah. So I'm really glad that we um talked about these films that were we we looked at them seriously. Um, the thing, if we do want to talk about film criticism, and I want to go back to Robert Warshaw and say that. You know, talking about films is one of the most convivial, like incredible activities that we can do. And experiencing like a good film is just like so raw when it's a good film. And I feel like, it, you know, in film studies, by making it academic, um, we do provide like more historical or theoretical frameworks to think about it. But we've also like taken away like just the general like shooting the shit stuff um, ability to talk about film, respond to it in this very immediate way, which is why this book by Borshaw is called The Immediate Experience. He's mm -hmm. this leftist, but he says every left cultural critic should be able to respond to the culture in an immediate way, like yeah. the most naive viewer. And like right from that point of view and take on what you're um what you're looking at what you're seeing and i feel like a lot of times now people do just the opposite they try to move um academics and pmc film studies types they try to move us as far away from that immediate experience and part of that might actually be like the 70s feminism that that uh, condemned um objectification of women like laura mulvey style so she really condemned the hollywood style we were told like narrative cinema was bad because it offered us closure it was like taking away all of these pleasurable yeah, things it's a, it's in a very postmodern um version of of reading film like it, it needs to fall into these certain categories and those categories need to be critiqued and each one of them has to provide like a, a um an extremely um i can't even think of, of the word like it, it has to flip it on its head and like for it to be like a worthwhile film experience or else it's Subver like yeah subverting the convention yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no and the other thing is like the other thing I think is really sad about a lot of that film theory and film criticism and people people really believe this at the time was that you know you could change the world by just making avant-garde film and making yeah. everyone watch it. And that's Which like, is the, the new left the new left that's kind bullshit. of Yeah. No, but the new left culturally, I mean, kind of felt that way about everything. You know what I mean? Like, yes, that's right. This is the PMC moment. This is the PMC takeover of the left, right? This mm -hmm. film criticism totally participated in that. It's like, let's take this really unpopular thing and make like all the masses follow us. <laughs> like, let's take John Marie Straub and like, if everyone can watch three hours of like the most like stultifying, incredible, but stultifying film, then like we'll liberate the masses from their <laughs> bad taste. Um, I, I think that is the opposite of this. I want to keep yeah. like promoting him. Um, it, it, it really creates also this echo chamber where to get an award, you have to have this certain critical response because like, you know what I mean? So filmmakers now, they, they chase that, those reviews and they chase that uh, certain social impacts that their movies would have, I guess, to try to get those awards. So suddenly, suddenly the critics aren't just uh, criticizing movies and, and, and like analyzing them. Suddenly the critics are kind of in charge of like, the, the further plots of, of the movies like the next movies that are being made like people are like well i'm thinking about what the critics are going to say about this and like what scholars are going to say about this and what the awards show people are going to say about this like it needs to be a certain level of woke because otherwise i can't get an award so, I, I was gonna say you're yeah. you're now transitioning us from like the avant-garde to the woke <laughs> i don't know like if we wanted to tread on that right now i mean we're i'm we're almost at the end of our time but i i do think that that is the transition. Like we're leading the way. Culture leads the way. Well, you know what? In the proper Marxist forms, no base leads superstructure. Superstructure is a symptom. I mean, of base of relation of relations of production. And I mean, I think it's great what we're doing. I mean, I'm obviously like involved in superstructural things, BMC things. But I keep trying to tell people like this is not where changing the world takes place. Like making films and watching films does not change the world. I do think, though, then you could say, like, what about these Chinese films? You just talked about all this, you know, working class sensibility and like the importance of class and all these films. I do think it's really important to understand how um, different filmmaking traditions in different countries look at um, the social problem. And yeah. I think that America is way fucking behind 
on this kind of stuff. And we think like Hollywood is so awesome. Iranian cinema, Chinese cinema, Taiwanese cinema, Mexican cinema, almost every other national cinema has more to say about their country's social problems than our cinema. Yeah. You know, no right. Madland oh. notwithstanding. <laughs> you know, really fucking sad that that yeah. was our social problem prestige film. <laughs> Thank you.